0: Good morning, family. Good morning. How we doing? Good. good. All right. Good. Me, too. Glad you guys are here. Well, I'm glad some of you guys are here. I'll be honest. No. That joke didn't work today, did it? All right. Thanks. Hey, open your Bibles up. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. We're continuing our series called A People of Faith by looking at the journey of Abraham, And today, Abram travels to Egypt, and he gets hit with a threat to the promise that God has made to him. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 10, and we'll read all the way down to 20. So Genesis 12, verse 10 through 20. If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, good. All right, hurry up. Come on, we're waiting. We're waiting. There you go. There you go. We're there. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being here with us today. We thank you that you're a God that has spoken in the years past and that you're a God that is still speaking to us today. And God, I pray that you would do exactly that, that you would speak to us today through your word, that your spirit would come and power and anoint these words that we've already heard, open up our hearts to hear them. And God, I pray for us as a church that we would be a church that has no fear, that we would not fear where you are taking us, that we would not fear what tomorrow brings. Uh, God, we would not be afraid of what you have in our lives as individuals, but we would be a people and individuals as well, Lord, that trust in the Lord with all our heart, that you're a good God that keeps his promises. And Lord, I pray that you would show us that and show us Jesus today in your scripture. Uh, Our hope is in you all day long, and we love you, God. Amen. Well, late night talk show host Jimmy Kimmel has a segment on his show called Lie Witness News. Not eyewitness, Lie Witness News. Have you guys seen that or heard about it? Nobody. Wow. Okay. Well, this will be good then. This will just hit right on the mark. What he does is basically this. I'll explain it since uh, no one's seen this yet. What is? is he sends out these pretend but very official-looking news reporters into the streets of Hollywood, Hollywood, California, and he asks people bogus questions on camera to see if they're going to lie or if they'll tell the truth. That's why it's called lie-witness news, all right? Now, most of us know that 13 states voted this week on Super Tuesday, right? Most of us know that. Uh, We also know... Most of us, I would say, know that California was not one of those states that got to vote in Super Tuesday, right? So to put it another way, there was no possible way that anyone in Hollywood, California could have voted on Tuesday. So what did he do? Kimmel sent his reporters out on Super Tuesday with a very simple question: Did you vote today? That's all he asked. That's all they asked, actually. If they lied and they said yes, then guess what they got? Follow-up questions. It's a pretty funny segment. Who did you vote for? What was the polling place like that you went to? Some of them got, like, really ridiculous questions. Like, hey, I heard they were charging $5 at the door this year. Did did you get charged? These are the questions that they got asked. And people (laughs) from all walks of life lied. They just lied one person after the next, and they were very proud of it. They were smiling, and they went into, like, very elaborate lies, very specific in their details on how they lied about voting. They lied about which courthouse they went to. They lied about how packed the polling place was that they went to. They talked about who they voted for. They talked about how, how mixed everybody was, you know, Republicans and Democrats, and they were so excited to see all these different people together at the polling place, and they talked. To, some people actually said that they were very excited about the, the number of people that showed up. They had like specific numbers of people at their polling place that they went to. And some even said, you know what, I, I got charged $10 at the door. <laughs> it must have been a very exclusive polling place, I guess. <laughs> Hollywood, right? So they went on and on and on about this. Why? Why did they lie about something so simple? Did you vote? I mean, no one's life was in danger. No one was going to lose their job if they said they didn't. I mean, was it a matter of national security? The simple answer uh, was that they were just afraid. I'm sure people were afraid of different things, like maybe not looking patriotic or, or looking stupid or something, because they hadn't voted, right? There was no possibility they could have. But, but, but the general point here is that they were just afraid They're afraid of what people would think about them. And that's kind of why we lie too, don't we? Fear is a powerful thing, is it not? It can change you on the spot. Fear can make us do all sorts of things that on a normal day we wouldn't even consider doing. Fear will cause us to lie, make awful decisions. Alter our daily routine, spend more money than we ought to, hide things from people or our doctor, right, or our loved one? Roosevelt said it best when he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, I think. Fear can dominate our life. In today's story of Abram, we're looking at what happens when fear controls our Life. And the first thing that we see, that when fear dominates us, it, it, it causes us to forget God, and to rely on ourselves. It simply causes us to forget God and to rely on ourselves. So what's going on here in this story is that there's a famine in the land, and Abram travels down south to Egypt to find food and water and basically to live, so that he doesn't die. He and his entire entourage are going to live in Egypt as sojourners. Sojourners are non-citizens that are finding safety and supplies in a foreign nation. Egypt has this great Nile River, right? So they're well-watered, they're a well-fed country, even in times of drought, when everyone else has had a hard time, Egypt's doing well. And so... Uh, people coming to live in Egypt for a while was not that unusual of a thing they kind of expected this influx of people to come famine threatens Abram's life and by extension the promise that God has made to him so Abram goes to Egypt to wait out this famine, he hasn't heard from God in a while because he's been traveling around, it's been a little while since he's heard from the Lord and so he does what he thinks is best I'm going to go to Egypt and take care of my family now, so I want to stop here just for a moment and, and point something out. It's not wrong that he recognizes this threat to his life. It's normal. It's rational. Makes sense. But it's one thing to be informed about our fears or informed, uh, yeah, of our fears. And it's another thing to be dominated or to be controlled by them, where they're actually driving the decisions that we make, Okay? Right before they cross the border, he pulls over the caravan to the side of the road, and he has a little conversation with his wife. We just read it, right? And he says this, "Look, here's what I know. Here's what I know. I know that you're beautiful." compliment, and he's off to a good start, I guess. I know that you're beautiful." And I know that the Egyptians, will what they're going to do to me when they find out that you're my wife and I'm your husband. I know that uh, that, that instead of being hospitable to us, they'll kill me. And they'll take you to be their wife. So I've got a plan. I'll take care of this. Here we go. Abram knows a lot, doesn't he? Before he gets into Egypt. Did you notice that? He just knows a lot. He has an entire scenario mapped out in his mind. He just knows the future. He knows what everyone's going to do and what they're going to say and how they're going to act. All of a sudden, Abram's become omniscient. There's no sign here that he asked God for help, or that he asked God for his advice. He just does what he thinks is best. And why would he? Why would he talk to God? After all, he knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. It's not time to talk to God. It's time to make a plan. And work the plan. It's like he completely forgets about God. That God's the one that's called him on this journey. And made these promises to him. He's being dominated by his fears. Not just informed by them. You know when we become dominated by fear. We all believe that we can see the future in exact detail don't we? We all get like this crystal ball we think. We know exactly what's going to happen and how it's going to go and what we need to do about it. We know what people will say. We know what the test results will be. We know what people are going to do to us if we say this or we act this way. We just know how it's going to play out. And we're convinced in our minds. And what happens is, guys, we forget about God in that moment. Are you tracking with me? We've just, for, just forgotten that He's existed, that He's with us. In those moments, we should be asking God, what are you doing in this moment in my life? Or God, what are you doing here in this situation? Let me pull back and look. What, what are, what, show me the fingerprints, your fingerprints in this situation because I can't see it. That's what we should be doing. We should be call, that's what it means to be calling upon the name of the Lord. But when you already know the future, why do you need to talk to God? Right? It's time to make a plan. You see, it's not so much that we don't believe in God anymore, it's just that we've forgotten about Him. Fear can make us forget God, and it can make us forget His promises to us. So we start to rely on our own knowledge of a situation or a person. We rely on our own logic, our own resources that are at our hand. And when we're dominated by fear, when fear dominates us, we become selfish also. We don't just forget God But we become selfish. So turn inward. In other words, and we rationalize it. So what happens is Abram has forgotten God. He takes it upon himself to save himself with this plan. Now we're going to read these verses again. I want you to take a look at how selfish his plan is. See if you can spot this. Okay, it's interesting. Verse eleven. When he was about to enter Egypt, so he's he's pulled the caravan over to the side of the highway. All right, the city limits. All right. He says to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. <laughs> Abram wants his wife to lie so that his life will be spared. So here's his thinking. They'll want Sarai for my wife. They find out that I'm the husband. They'll kill me. But if they think that I'm her brother, they'll bargain with me for her. So that was customary. So they'll just play by our customs. Sounds reasonable, right? It could work. Could work. Maybe Abram thinks that he can bargain with the Egyptians. Maybe he thinks he can, like, I don't know, outfox them somehow or bid the price too high. I don't know what he's thinking. But what we do know is that Abram's hoping that everything plays out exactly like he thinks it will play out in his scenario. It'll play out as long as the Egyptians buy this lie initially. As long as the lie isn't exposed later, which it is. And as long as the Egyptians are the kind of people that actually bother, bother bargaining with foreigners trying to enter their country. Instead of taking things by force that they like. So Abram's assuming a lot, isn't he? Abram, is, I want you to know something else. Abram is actually putting his wife in an extremely dangerous situation just so that he will live. The one that they call the great man of faith isn't acting like that great a man right now, is he? It's kind of like acting like Adam, isn't he, actually? If they don't buy the lie, Sarai dies. If they do buy the lie, Sarai becomes another man's wife, if you know what I mean. That's your options. Abram sees danger ahead, and he asks his wife to sacrifice herself for him. What a man. What a man. He places his wife literally between him and danger. Between him and death. I want you, sweetie, to stand between me and death. Go. It'll be great. This will work. Remember what we talked about last week? That, that after the gardening, after Genesis 3, the entire world turns into like the Jerry Springer show? This is what I'm talking about. This could be like, you know, guests on the Jerry Springer show. But here's the deal. He coats his entire plan with like this little thin veneer, this appearance of selflessness. I've, I've taken care of the family. I've taken care of you. Do it so that my life may be spared for your sake. In other words, do this for me because if I die, if, you know, if I die, this, this will spare sadness for you, baby. All right? I don't want you being sad that I'm gone. That's what he's saying. He's not really thinking about her, is he? But when we're dominated by our fear, it's really easy to rationalize what we do and how we react to that, and how we respond to that. Let's not be too hard on Abram. We do this exact thing, don't we, when we are f- afraid. Whether it's just like in the moment with someone that we're talking to, or there's something bigger going on in our life, this is how we act, this is how we respond, don't we? Amen. You know, for some of us, some of us it's men that are afraid that their family will not have enough, so they work all the time. I want my family to have the best. I'm afraid they might not have enough, so they're going to work all the time. And what you get is this functional one-parent family. The father actually sacrifices the family in the name of the family. That's the irony of that situation. He says he's doing it for them. Why do you think I'm at work? I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. But he's really doing it for him, so he'll feel better. Instead of recognizing that provision for the family comes in more ways than just the amount of money in the bank account, He slowly kills the very relationships that are most important to him. What about moms? Got any moms in here? All right, moms, coming at you. Moms are fearful that someone might hurt their young child. So they come up with this great plan, this solution. You know what? If I can make my kids afraid, like I'm afraid of everything, then I'll keep them safe. What we call this, putting the fear of God in them. No, you're not. You're putting the fear of man in them. You're putting the fear of man in them. If I can just make my kids afraid of everything, walking home from the bus stop, watching movies at a friend's house, joining a sports team at the school, if I can just make their fears as great as my fears are, that will keep them safe. That will keep them out of trouble if they're afraid. They say that they do it out of love for their child, but really? Come on. And a little bit out of the love for themselves? Because if they're sad, they get sad, right? If they get hurt, they're hurt. So instead, what happens, instead of the child being equipped with the wisdom to know what to do in various situations, they're saddled with fear in various situations. They're not confident in those situations. So the child doesn't try anything beyond their abilities. They never leave the city limits or the basement. They never know how to choose and maintain good, healthy friendships. I don't know what that looks like. Here's another one, all right? Google reported this week that searches on how to move to Canada spiked 350% on Super Tuesday. I'm not even joking. There it is. 350%. Now, are you someone that's afraid of what might happen to our country if your particular person doesn't get voted and elected? Does that put fear in you? Are you someone that's in, that wants to, instead of stay and cultivate your own neighborhood, cultivate the community to a better place, you'd rather leave? I guess from these searches, a lot of people do. Here's what I'm saying this matters, guys. This matters for us. A couple of questions here. Because when fear dominates, we become selfish. And it's really easy to rationalize it. It just makes a lot of sense to us. So here's a couple of questions. What are you afraid of right now? What is it? Can you pinpoint it? Like, what is taking up the most mental real estate? You know what I'm saying? What is that? And secondly, how are you responding to fear? How are you resp- if, we, if you could step outside yourself and look at yourself responding to that, how are you responding right now to that fear? Are you worrying about it? Is it showing up in your sleep patterns? Is it coming out in the way that you talk? Are you just checking out? Some people, that's how they deal with fear. I'm just checking out. I don't care. I'm here, but I'm not here. You're praying, how are you doing that? So what keeps us from being dominated by fear? Well, we must see that God keeps his promises to us. God keeps his promises to us. Let's go to Genesis 12, let's go 17 through 19, okay? We got the scripture? Yep. All right. But the Lord afflicted Afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. That sounds like a little foreshadowing, huh? That shows up later, doesn't it, Exodus? But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So, uh, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, "What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife?" Here you have an Egyptian rebuking Abram. you got a bad guy rebuking the good guy. That's going to sound pretty funny, doesn't it? Why have you done this to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her. Go. It's really choppy in, in, in the Hebrew especially. Here, wife, take, go is what it says. He wants them out, and we'll give you an armed escort to make sure you get out. He is thrusting them out. The Lord spares Abram's life, even though he lied, forgot God, trusted in himself, put his, and put his wife in a place to be sexually exploited by somebody else, instead of protecting her like he was supposed to. He spares Sarai's life, though she is complicit with the plan, instead of reminding her own husband about the promises that God made. She didn't say a word in all this. Did you notice that? Did you notice how silent she is? It's deafening how silent she is. Not only that, but the Lord gets them and their entire entourage out of Egypt in better shape than when they went in, not because of Abram's faith in God, but despite his lack of faith. They come out smelling like a rose in this situation. It's remarkable, guys. God looks at Abram's failure to trust him and basically says, I'm going to keep my promise to bless you all by myself. I love the all-by-himselfness of God, don't you? I love that. God keeps his promise to his to fearful and faithless people all by himself. Pharaoh is cursed for dishonoring Abram, just like God promised in verse 3 of chapter 12. We talked about that last week, remember? God kept his promise. Sarai and Abram are both rescued so that the promised offspring, Jesus, will come from their own body to redeem the world, just like God promised them earlier. God is keeping his promise. He's doing what he said he would do no matter what Abram and Sarai do. And those promises are ours through Jesus. You want to know who Jesus is? Here's who Jesus is. Jesus is God keeping his promise to fearful, faithless people all by himself. That's Jesus. Jesus stands as the greatest piece of physical evidence that God does indeed keep all the promises that he makes to his people. Galatians 3.29 says it this way, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The gospel tells us that even though we treat God according to our fears, God treats us according to his promise because of Jesus Christ. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news for faithless, fearful people. Amen? That's right. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean that God keeps his promise to us through Jesus Christ? Well, it means a few things. First of all, it means that we don't have to be dominated by fear. Praise God. Can be. Will be sometimes. Don't have to be don't have to be dominated by fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When we are moved from being informed by our fears into the realm of being dominated by our fears, we know that for certain that is not of God. That is not from God. God has filled us with the promised Holy Spirit, not a spirit of fear, so that we know we belong to God. And His love, through His Spirit, casts out all fear. He removes it. Here, take, go, leave, is what His Spirit says to our fear. He's given us His perfect love. Like the artist Makato Fujimara, he tweeted it this week, if you know who he is. If I'm not immersed in love, I will be consumed by fear. If I'm not immersed in love, I will be consumed, eaten up by fear. How true is that? I love that. That's true in my life, at least. God has immersed us in His love through the Holy Spirit, which gives us the power to trust Him When we're tempted to be afraid, guys. The fact that God keeps his promises means that he will not abandon us in times of danger. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says this. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Guys, Jesus will send us to dangerous places. Jesus will send us into dangerous situations. He has not promised us safety, and he hasn't promised us comfort. But he has promised us his very own presence. I am with you. I, the one who has all authority, I am with you. I am with you always. Is what he says. The fact that God keeps his promises means that we are secure even when we face death. Even when death comes for us, we are secure. John eleven twenty six, 26. He says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what he said. In the end, everybody dies. Everybody dies except the Christian. We go from life to life through a paper-thin doorway called death. We go from life. To, you can't kill a Christian. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't really kill a Christian because we are secure in Christ. We're in his hands. Not even death can snatch us out of his hands because he's the resurrection and the life. Guys, these are wonderful promises to us from God all because of Christ's faithfulness. All because of Christ's faithfulness there are. Christ trusted in the Father perfectly even in the face of fear and a horrible death looming right at him. Abram had great faith but Christ had perfect faith all the way to the end where Abram failed where you have failed where we have failed to trust in the promise of God Jesus has succeeded Jesus has trusted him and in doing so he's completely fulfilled God's promises to us isn't Christ wonderful and he worthy of some songs and some prayer and he worthy of a sacrifice He's is worthy of our love. That's why we love Jesus, guys. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. What does it do to your soul to know this, to know that God has rescued you from sin and death, not because of your performance, but because of his promise? What does that do to your soul? Doesn't that make you want to trust him the next time you're tempted to be dominated by fear? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus shows us, and it just tells us, Jesus shows us that our God is not just a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. Jesus shows us that. So let's trust him, guys. Can we do that this week? Let's decide we're going to trust Him this week and whatever comes in front of us this week, Because we don't know the future, but He does. And he's made preparations for us. He's given us someone to look at. All right, let's do that this week. Amen? All right, I love you guys. I'm gonna pray for you, okay? Oh Jesus, we love you. You're the king. Thank you for doing what we couldn't do. Thank you for being faithful when we were faithless. When we broke rank, you stood firm. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, we get these promises because of you and not because of us. God, I just pray right now that you would make us a people that are not afraid. I pray that you'd make us fearless knowing that we're secure in your hand, that you go with us, you are with us always. God, when fear comes, when it taps on our door, when it sends us an email, when it stands right in front of our face, talking to us, I pray that you would help everyone in this room that would get a picture of you, Jesus. Smiling, strong, secure, with these words on your mouth. I love you. I love you. It doesn't matter if they hate you or are disappointed in you or if they've come to trouble you. I love you. Amen.